Welcome to this week's episode of Basically. I'm your host, Stephanie Preisner, and this week we are talking to the man with the biggest checkbook in the country. The man with the checkbook for the country, the Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue. This is a Headstuff podcast recorded at the podcast studios. I am terrible at my own personal finances, right? Because I find it all very overwhelming. How are you, like, the numbers guy? What is your background? How did you get to where you are? Do you have to have a background in finance and numbers and all that to become the Minister for Finance? Uh, You don't have to have a background in that to become the Minister for Finance. And uh, I'm not a trained accountant myself. Uh, and many of my predecessors uh, did not have accounting backgrounds. Did you have an abacus as a child? Uh, I don't recall having an abacus, <laughs> but I, I have always had a um, uh, an ease with numbers. Right, and okay. And I, uh, even though uh, I'm not an accountant at all, don't have any accounting qualifications, I worked in uh, the private sector and in business for a number of years, for nearly 10 years before I got into public life. Uh, And I am very well used and was very well used in that life to spreadsheets with lots of numbers on them. And is that how things come to you? Like, is it, do you get spreadsheets with the, because in my childhood brain, right, or in my childlike brain, there is a vault somewhere. And all of the money that the government owns, that Ireland owns, is in a vault somewhere. So when the Minister for, I don't know, housing says, we need a billion, and you say, yeah, you can have a billion, someone goes, gets that money and gives it to them. Like how, <laughs> that's obviously So there not- is literally a spreadsheet when you're doing a budget, which has on it uh, how much money we're going to raise in taxes, okay, how much money we are going to borrow and or repay back. And what is the total sum of both of those figures? Okay, so how much money we're earning, because that's tax. And, and then how much we are going to borrow or repay back to the financial markets in the period for which the budget takes effect. And it's a very, very big spreadsheet. And when I'm doing a budget, I get that spreadsheet every day. And then what you have on the spreadsheet as well is all of the different asks and needs that are coming in from every government department. Okay. What they have had in funding for this year, what they are looking for for next year. Do they always ask for more? uh, Always. (laughs) And you always get a multitude of the requests. The requests are always a multitude of the resources that are available. So every department is asking for multiples of what you can actually afford to give Absolutely. Them. And you have a spreadsheet that comes through that you see every day across the four week period in which you are concluding doing a budget. Uh, and uh, on one part of a very big spreadsheet is all of the different needs that are coming through and asks that are coming through. And then on the other side of it are the resources that are available. So there literally is a master spreadsheet which in turn generates the budget. Okay. Uh, but I think it's dead important when we're, you know, talking about that as a concept and talking about the numbers end of us to be really conscious that a budget is not just an accounting exercise. A budget is the way by which a government looks to respond back to the social needs within a, a country and to the economic needs and opportunities that are there as well. And is that how like a different government, so say you are a Fine Gael minister for finance, and is is that how a budget might look different depending on the party or the particular politician that is overseeing the budget? Like can you, are you actually the man who decides, right, this department is getting this much money because of reasons <coughs> I don't have to well, reasons I've understood, but you don't have to justify it. Well, you are the person who decides who gets what, or to be more specific, it's the Minister for Public Expenditure, a job that I did over the last four years. So what's the difference then? So we have within our our system of government, uh, the Department of Finance and the Department of Public Expenditure. Okay. I did both those roles for the last uh, over three years uh, together. Uh, The Department of Finance is responsible for the overall budgetary strategy for the country. And by budgetary strategy, I mean 
uh, how much money overall are you going to be spending per year for a number of years into the future. Okay. It's responsible for taxation. It's responsible for the regulation of our banking and financial services sector. And it is responsible for how we engage with financial matters and on financial matters with the rest of the world. And then public expenditure. And the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform literally then does um, within the uh, overall framework that's created by the Department of Finance, uh, what portion of money goes into our day-to-day spending, what portion of money goes into capital spending, or to use a different, explain that differently, what amount of money goes into building things. Okay. Um, and then within the current spending, the Department of Public Expenditure then decides what department gets how much money. Uh, and that is the process then of putting together a budget overall. Um, you then decide who gets what. You always do that in consultation. You with being the, the Minister for Finance? Uh, Minister for, for Public, Public Expenditure. Expenditure in relation to money. Okay. You always do that in consultation with the Taoiseach yeah. uh, because it's very important that he or she is aware of decisions the that have been made. Uh, but by and large, those decisions are left to the Minister for Public Expenditure. Uh, and it is, in terms of the latter part of your question, you know, who do you justify to? Well, ultimately, you justify it to the Doyle right. um, and to the rest of government beforehand. When on budget day, you take in a memo uh, outlining how much money uh, the budget is going to deliver in any given year. And then in a separate memo, you outline what government department is going to get what. Okay. But I'd emphasise that within the the uh, kind of uh, minutiae of all this kind of process. Taking a step back, this is about how you use the economic resources of a country to deal with things that matter to its citizens. And you asked me the question of how does it differ depending on who is doing the job? You know, on a top line level, it can differ in two different ways. It can differ in terms of deciding how much you borrow or don't borrow. Yeah. It can differ in terms of deciding how much you tax and who you tax. And then it can also differ in terms of deciding where you allocate then those resources. And that is a gigantic set of decisions to make. It seems something that sounds very complicated. And like I know during the general election, and I know electioneering is a particular style of behaviour, but some manifestos that were coming out from different parties were basically like cash giveaways. And that's all very well and good to say if you don't have to then do it. But what you seem to be explaining is a much more delicate, intricate almost, balancing of like, how can we keep all this going? Absolutely. An an American politician once said, show me your budget and you'll show me your values. Yeah. And it is... Uh, the most demanding thing that a government has to do every year. And it is a exceptionally important uh, for guessing, trying to get the balance right between the needs of a society today, the needs of a society tomorrow, and then the ability to fund the needs of today while not creating difficulties tomorrow. Line. And so based on your previous budgets, and we can talk about the future in a minute, what do you think the, the based on that American quote, the priorities, show me your budget and I'll, you're showing me your priorities. What have been the priorities since you've been the Minister for Finance? So there would be uh, two things uh, that would uh, immediately spring to mind. The first one is in each of the budgets that I did, I put more and more money into uh, what I called earlier on capital expenditure, which is money that you put into actually investing and building uh, new homes, new hospitals, new projects. And year by year, I increased that. Uh, And the fruits of that will probably only become apparent in the coming years. Uh, But each budget I did prioritise spending in capital expenditure ahead of growth in current expenditure. Uh, uh, the uh, second feature of it then will be in terms of what I did in relation to taxation yeah. where by and large the changes that I put in place in terms of personal taxation were a fraction of what happened the last time our economy was growing so quickly 
Okay. Uh, and that was a conscious choice. So the last time our economy was growing quickly, the government were like, hey, we've got loads of money, so we're going to cut your taxes so you don't actually have to pay us so much because we don't need so much. Um, am I right there? But I think you're mostly right on us, but overall... I'm being basic, and then... Yeah, no, absolutely. The last time the economy grew really quickly, a decade ago, uh, uh, the amount of spending in the economy, the amount of tax reductions in the economy, the amount of social welfare increases in our economy were really, really big year after year after year. And in each of the budgets that I did, uh, uh, all of which were subject to different critiques and at times great criticism. We're talking about Celtic views. Tiger for... During that period, a decade yeah. ago, absolutely, we had incomes growing, you know, very quickly with the economy growing really quickly. And then laced on top of that uh, was massive increases in day-to-day spending, massive increases in uh, 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 the wages that we paid our public servants and really big tax cuts every year. And uh, uh, I increased public spending. Some will argue that I might have increased public spending by too much. Okay. Uh, but the rate at which I increased public spending was a, a, a dramatic reduction on what happened the last time our economy grew so quickly. And I was very, very careful with tax reductions, both because I was prioritising capital expenditure, which we talked about a moment ago, but also because I was really aware at a time the economy is growing so quickly and it we were at full employment, like what was forever. the value in cutting taxes really quickly? Um, and it did meant then that when we uh, got into uh, a huge unexpected challenge of how we deal with COVID, you know, over many years, I had built on the work of my predecessor, Michael Noonan, and Ireland was perceived to be a very creditworthy country. And when we decided we need to borrow many, many, many billions of euro, all of a sudden, we were able to get that money. Okay. So let me talk to you about that, right? So the government have been so swift at making sure that people are not out of pocket because of COVID. That pandemic unemployment payment came in. So many people that I know are on it, the wage subsidy scheme. It really has saved people's lives, I think, in a very real sense. When I spend money in the way that you could characterise the government as spending money to protect people. So say I go on some sort of shopping spree in TK Maxx. <laughs> I then have sleepless nights because I'm like, How? but I just spent all my money and there's none coming in. What? Like, there isn't an empty, or a f- there isn't an endless pool of money. Are you worried at all about how much money this is costing and how long it will go on for? Uh, I have in my mind... Uh, a, uh, a reasonably clear idea of, uh, you know, what we can afford and how long we can, can you continue tell us? to do it. I'd prefer not to okay. because ultimately uh, answering questions like that indicates decisions that I'm going to make okay. in Fair a few enough. weeks' time and indicates to uh, those who look at my comments really, really carefully how much we might borrow and when we're going to do it. Um, uh, I am deeply, deeply aware and it's on my mind all of the time regarding the responsibility that I have regarding how we intervene to deal with the near catastrophe that COVID posed to so many families and workers and citizens when it hit us and also ensuring that I don't create even further difficulties down the line for those citizens that I serve. Because that budget that you spoke about earlier that has the two like it has the number of how much money Ireland is earning in taxes and how much money we're going to borrow like those must have become completely inverted in recent times like you're not earning money in tax because so many people are unemployed they did but at the same time then what you then have to do is take a step back and think about this from a first principles point of view like what is the role of the state in a country that by international standards is very rich, in a country that always attempts to govern itself well and most of the time it does. Therefore, what is the role of the state when we get hit by a tsunami like COVID? And I decided in consultation with the then Taoiseach Leo that what we had to do was step in to take the place of employers for a period of time. Uh, because a company closing down because of 
them closing their business because of the public health guidance that was issued as a response of COVID isn't the fault of the company for yeah. not running affair, its affairs properly. It's certainly not the fault of the worker who was in the company. This was something that was completely external to our country, to any employer, to any worker. And in many ways uh, was the, um, the kind of perfect symbol of what happens when a borderless world uh, generates, is dealing with something that does not know borders either, yeah. which is a virus. Uh, and uh, the decision we made uh, over a, a couple of days is that we, we had to step in and we had to supply that income. And we did it for ethical and for social reasons. Like what is the price you place on social cohesion? What is the price you pay on social stability at a time of such threat? And the, the answer to that question is you place a very, very high right. value on it. And that value is so high, you have to move away from a while about thinking about that as a cost or a price. Right. Um, and then over time, um, as we continue to be successful in dealing with this virus and dealing with this disease, we will then over time look at how we make changes in what we are doing that hopefully coincide with the economy beginning to grow again. And we're doing some of that already. I listened to some other podcasts and I've heard people say Europe is just is, is giving away free money at the moment. There is no interest. Why are Ireland not just borrowing like the money is literally free. Why don't they just do it? And it's very easy when you're not the Minister for Finance to sit there and be like, this is what they should be doing. But what is happening in your, like, is it a good time for us to borrow money so that we don't actually have to pay for it? We can just take money, free money, from, like printing more money. Is that the possibility? This is what we're already doing, though. I mean, what we're already doing is this year borrowing between 23 and 30 billion euro. And to put that, we have to pay that back. We will have to pay that back. And to put that figure in context, um, we are collecting. We're going to uh, borrow, as I said, between twenty-three and thirty billion euro in taxes. We'll probably collect this year somewhere between forty-nine to fifty-one, fifty-two billion euro. So we are going to borrow probably over half of what we're going to collect in taxes. So for those who are asking, why don't we borrow? The we answer is we're borrowing in a huge way at the moment. Those who would then say we should be borrowing even more, we are going to be borrowing even more across the coming <laughs> years because if I or another Minister for Finance were to look to close the gap between what we are spending and what we are taxing, raising the taxes too quickly, yeah. that of itself will create problems for many of your listeners, which I want to avoid happening as well. But the reason why there is a limit as to how you can borrow uh, is, so let's say, Stephanie, you're looking across the table at me. Uh, let's assume for one moment you were to be the financial markets incarnate. So <laughs> let's say you were to be a shimmering vision of the financial markets. I'm about as unstable as they are at the moment. Oh, I think you're every bit as powerful as they are as well, at least <laughs> domestically, right? Um, and uh, you're, I'm the Minister for Finance for Ireland. And I say to you, right, uh, I now want to borrow um, 100 euro and you say to me, okay, I'm willing to lend you 100 euro and that is going to be at an interest rate of 0.1%. Okay, that's all well and good. 0.1% uh, is obviously a very attractive interest rate. Uh, not every country in Europe is able to access that interest rate, uh, but we decide we're going to borrow, Ireland's going to borrow that from you. The really tricky bit then becomes is then, let's say you say to me, I'll give you that money for seven years. In seven years' time, I can Stephanie, say. you reappear again to the Minister for Finance and you say, okay, uh, uh, I want my seven euro back. Uh, I want my hundred euro back, pardon okay. me. What normally happens at that point is governments roll over the debt uh, or Same. occasionally they pay it back. They then say, okay, uh, I... Uh, um, We'll repay you back your loan, but I want to get another loan off you to repay back that loan. And that's one of the big differences between countries and, or as they're known more kind of technically as the sovereign versus individuals. Okay. They, rare, they don't always repay back a loan. 
they repay that loan back By with borrowing. another loan they take. Like remortgaging. Exactly. But the question then is, what interest rate? Because I might turn around and be like, okay, yeah, sure. But this time it's like one or 3.5%. Or it could be 0.3% or 0.4%. have implications. Which even though it could be a, still a low interest rate or could be far higher than that, when then your national debt or when the loan that you are managing is many billions of euro, movements of 0.1%, movements of even a percentage point, have gigantic consequences. But me as the global financial markets, um, COVID has been this thing that none of us were expecting. And mm -hmm. so everyone, well, not everyone, but like the way you described the government saying like, actually now it's important for us to put, you know, profit aside and just step in to save the people and do the greater good. Is there anything that me as the global market could be like, I'm not going to do that to you. I will never... <laughs> Or, or I, obviously I'm not sentient because I'm the global markets, but is there anything about COVID that people are like, we're going to be fair here and not try to make an awful lot of money out of the money that we're giving you? So we'll guarantee that it will always be. So financial markets, uh, uh, because, uh, you know, th their interests are profitability, the okay. sustainability of that profitability, will always look at, will they get that money back? And what is the interest rate they need to charge to compensate for the risk of not getting that money back. But this is, in the era of COVID, this is where then another really important and powerful entity steps in, uh, which is the role of our central banks. Okay. And uh, one of the uh, big challenges of the great financial crisis of a decade ago was the role that our central banks were or were not able to play during that era of great difficulty a decade ago. And what has happened across the era of COVID is central banks all over the world have said to governments uh, that we will help you be able to borrow the money you need to respond back to helping your citizens. Because and that has been a really profound change versus where we were a number of years ago. And in Europe in particular, it's why the work of the European Central Bank is so hugely important. And is I think my understanding of that is because during the financial crisis 10 years ago, that or more than that, that the, the issue, the crisis was actually in the banks. It was the banks that had the disease. Whereas now it's society and the banks are like, people trust our banks. There is money there. It's just that like you couldn't pay someone now to go to Wuhan or wherever. De demand and supply, it's a different sort of an it's issue. That is exactly it. It's completely different. And as you correctly said, a decade ago, this is an issue that originated in, in banks. our banks, then into our financial systems and from our financial systems into the lives of everybody. This is a fundamentally different crisis that we are in, fundamentally different, uh, because the origin of this is uh, a, a virus, it's biology. And it, it has, it, it, if you look at the way our, the global economy is structured, if you look at the way national economies are structured, they're all based on ideas that kind of distance for no, are no longer, is no longer as important as it would have been a yeah. hundred years ago or a decade ago. They're based on concepts like trade, which are about contact, about physical contact. Uh, these things are interwoven into our national economies and the global economy. And this is a disease mm -hmm. which thrives inside the spaces that create an economy. Yeah. And that's why it's so fundamentally different to where we were a few years ago, which in turn is one of the reasons why the things that we're approach. doing are so different to where we were a number of years ago. And you were saying there that the, the money that we're spending or how much how much you can afford to spend or how long the country can afford to support people is something that plays on your mind. COVID aside, just public life, is it a very stressful job being the Minister for Finance or is it any more stressful than being any other kind of minister? I, I imagine that people stop you in the street around budget day and ask for checks like. 
They do sometimes. <laughs> they do. Not just a budget day. Uh, uh, m- many days. I'll, I'll uh, always remember when I became Minister for Finance, turning up at a, a, an event in my constituency in the very early days. And as I turned up, they changed the music that was playing at the community event to Money, 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 Money by, by ABBA. ABBA. <laughs> uh, and that was just a sign of what was to come. Uh, and is it... Very, very demanding. Uh, uh, yes, it is because you're at the point at which the needs for everything meet with your ability to afford everything as well. But it's an enormous privilege. And uh, I love nearly every minute of us. What uh, are you proud of? There, there are moments in which I couldn't say I do love because there are moments of great challenge. But when you do get to those moments, they're incredibly rewarding and incredibly enriching to be there for them. Um, What am I proudest of? Uh, I guess there are uh, uh, two things I'm proudest of uh, uh, in terms of decisions that I've made. Uh, The uh, first one would be the the set of decisions that were made earlier on in the year, bringing in the wage subsidy scheme, increasing the value of the pandemic unemployment payment, uh, they are decisions that will live with me forever in terms of the scale of them and the consequences of them. And uh, I'll always be very proud that I got to the point where I can make those decisions and equally proud that my years before I got to that point were full of decisions that helped me then make the really big one. And that was the really big one. When you're sitting in your office and your civil servants come in to tell you that hundreds of thousands of people are going to be unemployed in a few days' time, many hundreds of thousands. What was that moment like? Uh, it was a, uh, to describe it as stark would be an understatement uh, because there were then so many other consequences of that happening that were really big, would have been a massive challenge for Ireland if they had happened. Uh, and it's one of those moments in which you know that every decision you're going to make is going to have a Profound. reverberate. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I know that lots of other decisions that I made in recent years had contributed to me then being able to figure out what was the right thing to do. Again, in consultation with Leo, who I worked with, you know, very closely with on all of this. Uh, um, But those decisions have created the capacity to do what we needed to do then, but it also given me the experience and the skill sets and the insights to think about what to do and ask the right people and try to do the right thing. So that that, that they are the set of decisions that I think will stay with me for for a long time. Um, And then the other thing would be you know, you, you always get a moment of kind of real private reward when you arrive uh, at a place or go to something that has been built or has been opened or has people living in it or has people enjoying in it that are a result of decisions that I made in each of the budgets that I did. Um, and I'll always, uh, I came across a kind of an example of this a couple of days ago when I was up at the, uh, our national sports campus up in Abbottstown and the fabulous uh, sporting indoor arena that is there. Is that near the National Aquatic Centre? Right across from the Aquatic oh, yeah. Centre. And when I was Minister for Transport, Tourism and Sport, I kept that project going. And then when I was Minister for Public Expenditure, I was able to help okay. with the final funding of it. Were you involved in the Lewis coming up to where we live? I wasn't involved in the decision on the route. Okay. Uh, You'll be glad to know, uh, because obviously that would have been a charged decision, uh, (laughs) given that it was going through my constituency. Uh, Leo, who was the Minister for Transport at the time, he picked the route. Uh, I made a wise decision on the route. Uh, uh, But then I was, of course, involved then in, in making the decisions to fund us and pay for us. I want to talk to you about ketchup for a second. Yeah, like actual tomato sauce. So you might remember that the old ketchup bottles were glass bottles, right? And then you couldn't like stick a spoon in, you couldn't stick a fork in, so you end up having to shake it out, hit the side of it, and then the tomato went everywhere and it looked like blood. And then all of a sudden the plastic bottles came along. Well, the plastic bottles didn't just come along out of nowhere. They came along because of UX design. 
Now, it wasn't called UX research back then, but in the 80s, researchers went and they watched families using ketchup and they noticed that it was mainly the kids who wanted to eat the ketchup. But because the bottles were so difficult to use, the parents had to put it on their plate for them. So they came up with the plastic bottle idea so that kids could squeeze their own ketchup without it going all over their plates. Today, UX designers and research carry out that kind of research every day when building apps and websites and software. They identify and fix problems that make the experience of using the app or the website or the software just simpler, like swapping an awkward glass ketchup bottle for an easy-to-use squeezy one. If you found that interesting, you might want to look into the UX Design Institute, today's sponsor on this podcast. The UX Design Institute deliver university credit-rated online courses in UX design. So if you're considering a career change or you want to find out more about UX design, visit uxdesigninstitute.com forward slash basically. And then other aspects of of public life. Um, We had um, Micheál Martin on a few weeks ago and he said things have changed since he got into politics and he's not he doesn't really like the whole social media the the criticism and the sort of nastiness of that is there an element of public life that that you struggle with or that you don't you wish wasn't there or are you well thought of in or pe- do people ever attack you all the time of course they do uh, and uh, whether that <clears throat> is mostly true social media uh, uh, and occasionally uh, but only very occasionally, physically, um, in terms of what people might say to me. Phys- in person? Like, in yeah. person, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it does happen. And uh, it is a price worth paying for uh, uh, having the privilege to hold uh, public office. Uh, but to build on what the, the Taoiseach said, what is a, a like a real ongoing worry to me is the tone in which politics is conducted. And the way politicians talk about each other, the way people talk about politicians, the way we talk about issues. And, um, you know, I am careful about how I expose myself to that. Yeah. Uh, because preserving my uh, uh, my ability to function effectively every day and perform my duties is really important to me. And I consciously look after that. And I have always shied away from using the kind of invective and language that many of my opponents will use about me uh, because uh, I don't believe it's appropriate. It's not the way I was brought up and it's not the way uh, I, it's not the way in which I think is healthy for politics or for society. Um, I can participate in any debate. I can uh, put forward any argument, but, but there's certain language I'll never use about somebody who disagrees with me. And that's used a lot about me, mm-hmm. but I won't use it because uh, I, I, I always have at the back of my mind the person I'm trying to convince, the person I'm trying to persuade. So you, a lot of the time is not the person who is shouting. It's not the person who's on, uh, you know, attacking me on social media. It's not the person raising their voice. And it's very rarely the person who's uh, attacking me or debating with me. And uh, I'm always conscious that the audience that I have as a member of government and as a politician is not the person in front of me and is rarely the person who's shouting about the issue that uh, I'm I'm engaged in. They could be upset about the issue, but they're rarely kind of attacking me in the way that has become the norm. It has become it has become incredibly personal, isn't it? Where, like where people are no longer seem no longer to be attacking attacking the decision made by the Office of Minister for Finance, but they are personal targeted attacks at Pascal Donahue, the person. And it seems, you know, I th- I would have said before that we are not the same sort of political vipers that we see in the States where things get very nasty and very personal. But more and more, you see that that is happening. It, it, I, I think we are uh, still not uh, as grotesque. The levels yes. of uh, debased politics that we are seeing in, in other parts of the world. Uh, uh, but there are many, many tones of how politics is conducted now uh, that I wish were not the case here in Ireland. Uh, and that isn't to say, I'm when I make an argument like that, many people would say to me at times, well, you don't understand the reality of the problem 
that is prompting that use of language. Like I do, I've been re-elected to the door now on three separate occasions due to the citizens and communities and people of Dublin Central. I have as much an understanding of the reality of difficulty uh, that, that any citizen faces as any other politician in Ireland has uh, uh, because of uh, representing my constituency and then they in turn re-electing me. But that doesn't mean you but have that to. doesn't justify, I believe, a certain kind of language. And, you know, I, I sometimes hear people write about, you know, the way I express myself or the way I conduct myself with people and uh, make comments about that. But I simply don't believe that any argument that I have to make is well served uh, by always shouting, by always raising my voice and by always saying that the person who disagrees with me is my enemy and by attacking their intentions. If I stopped 100 people on Grafton Street, Henry Street, whatever side of the Liffey, and I asked them, Pascal Donoghue, Minister for Finance, I want you to write down three words that describe him. What would you like those words to be? Hardworking, honest, and principled. They're pretty good words and I put you on the spot there. I think you would get that. I think you, and particularly in the portfolio that you're in, I think it's crucial that you're someone that is trustworthy and all of that stuff that you've just been saying, which I didn't know about you, but now that you've said it, I notice that you don't conduct yourself in this sort of, it sometimes seems a bit petty, you know, that things can get a little bit um, sharp when they don't need to. And one of the things I uh, sometimes thought about, Stephanie, is that, you know, one of the, I think, difficulties and traps that politics has set for itself is the whole idea that if you're explaining, you're losing. And actually, politics is about explaining and then is about decisions and they're intertwined with each other. And just because an argument is complex doesn't mean it's not clear. Just because a, a, a proposition can't be expressed in a quick sentence doesn't mean it's wrong. And I look back myself at, you know, how I have conducted politics and how I've contributed to the development of politics and at times how I've practiced politics. And the more and more as I look at as kind of where we are now, Saying that if you're explaining you're losing is an argument for reduction mm-hmm. in politics and an argument for reducing and reducing the use of language and the use of argument. And then when that happens, that is when simple claims become dangerous. I think we're seeing it's a that, complex world. We're seeing that at the moment as well, where people are refusing to acknowledge that how we open society is complex and nuanced, much more complex than just locking down. Far more complex. And and some politicians are getting very defensive about being asked to explain it. Yeah. And then others who do explain it are being criticised for not being, you know, specific and and, and curt or concise enough. And and just because an argument for something is complicated and may have a number of different stages for us, uh, doesn't mean that it isn't capable of being clear. Uh, and uh, and those who, and I understand why, I'm not critical of these claims for a moment, who uh, always look for clarity, look for things not to change, uh, look for, uh, you know, instant full explanations of, of everything. Um, I think sometimes we need to convey that you, we are making decisions frequently in an environment that's changing really quickly. Rapidly. That's full of incomplete information and as frequently full of signals that conflict with each other. And what you're trying to do is sift your way through all of that flux to try and find a path for our country. Uh, and uh, God knows we don't always get it right. God knows we frequently get it wrong. Uh, but uh, I think the case can be made about Ireland uh, that over the sweep of our state's existence, we've got the big things right more often than we've got them wrong. 
Uh, and um, uh, if that argument is to be there to be made about a country, um, those who believe that have to make the case for us. Um, and th that is not for a moment not to deny the reality of all of the problems, all of the difficulties, all of the many litany of tragedies that, of course, have also interspersed the weave of our country's history. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, but in acknowledging that, if there's a case to be made for our country getting the big things more often right than wrong, I think we should make it. And I think we have. Do you think that, or how long do you think it will be? Well, I suppose you don't know this, no one does about COVID, but until we are economically, financially back in a position like we were last year, the end of last year. So uh, you were good enough in putting the question to me to acknowledge that nobody yes. knows the answer to that. Um, and you're, that's, uh, I, I appreciate that. So I guess... Two bits of context yeah. to my answer before I give it. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to catch you out. No, I know you're not. And yeah, I'm yeah. trying to answer a really important question. Uh, I'm trying to give it the, the kind of the seriousness with which it deserves because it matters to everybody. So if you look at the economy that we had in 2019, mm -hmm. there were so many parts of that economy that were performing at a level that was far higher than they had ever performed at before. So many different parts of the economy were trading at a level that was the best they had ever trade us, traded us. And an example of that would be tourism. Mm -hmm. Year after year after year, tourism did better, better, better. So that's the first bit of background to us. I guess the, the, the other bit of background, before I give you my kind of considered view as to where, where, where we will be, is where we were last year. Um, was also really heavily influenced by where the global economy was, because that will always be the case for Ireland, because we're a small, small, open country. Uh, so with that said, with all of that said, uh, I think it is, will take at least the rest of this year to work our way through many of the shocks that we have now mm -hmm. in our lives that are economic in nature because of COVID. I believe as we move into next year, if we maintain the public health progress that we're making at the moment, we will see our economy begin to recover. By next year? Uh, oh, well, I'm very confident it will be recovering next year, yes. Okay. Now, does that mean that it will go back to where it was last year Next year, it will not. Uh, and how quickly it will go back to something that resembles what we left will ultimately depend on where we are with the pandemic. But I think while it is very possible uh, uh, that within a number of years, the overall economy in size will go back to where we were last year if we continue to make progress with this disease the actual composition of that economy, who is doing what, the size of different parts of the economy, is unlikely to be, will not be exactly the same as that which we left. Okay. Because the world in a few years' time will be, be different to what the world was in 2019. And then, with that in mind, so say you make a budget now for October. Mm -hmm. It's October, isn't it? The budget Absolutely. comes out. Actually, I remember my book launched on the 10th of October in 2017 and I invited you and you were like, I think and they I might said, be busy. It's a busy day for me that day, Stephanie. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Um, so you have, a, say you set out a budgetary plan. Is that for a year or do you also kind of have a five-year plan in that? Or it, like there's a future plan? So there will be, uh, we'll be aiming to do both, uh, certainly do the year. Uh, uh, but also given an indication beyond 2021 as well. Yes. And so Fine Gael, uh, as my understanding, or, you know, the current government, um, Fine Gael would be kind of centre-right-ish. If there were to be, uh, so you set out this budget and then there was a general election mm -hmm. and a completely different, I guess, economic, um, a, a party that had different economic views came in and had a totally different budget, mm. would that really affect the economy in a way that would kind of make it, you know, when you're walking in the airport on the travelator and you get off it and all of a sudden it's like, bump, 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 you have to kind of catch your steps again. Is it, 
safer financially and economically for a country to stay in one economic box or I mean I'm kind of putting you on the spot here but like how flexible are those budgets to new party ways of, of taking them forward? They're very flexible uh, but every act has consequences and it kind of won't surprise you to surprise you to hear me make the case that I think the way in which we're trying to make these decisions is the best way for the country. But many will legitimately disagree with me and say different decisions could be taken. And different decisions can always be taken. There are always alternatives. Are there other countries that are dealing with this financially like totally different to us? By and large, uh, within... Within Europe and... Within... Uh, modern developing economies actually by and large at the moment everybody is taking uh, roughly similar approaches at the moment. And are there countries that you as a like personally as the Minister of Finance kind of look to as like oh I kind of very frequently check in with what they're doing? Yeah I do it all the time do it all the time Uh, uh, always uh, 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 very much aware of what the larger economies are near us and across the world are doing, clearly what the UK is doing, what France and Germany are doing, what the States are doing, uh, always monitoring that and talking to them and then always looking at what smaller countries or medium-sized economies would be doing who are very similar to Ireland in either in terms of scale or objectives. So we're always talking to colleagues and, you know, always on the phone to colleagues in different parts of Europe or across the world do you have a Talking little Minister of Finance WhatsApp group? We don't. <laughs> we don't. I once told a journalist colleague of yours that I had a WhatsApp group in relation to Fantasy Football League that had other cabinet ministers in it. And I'm I'm disappointed to tell you that neither is the case. <laughs> neither is the case. Uh, but uh, I, I do have lots of, co- I do have colleagues that I talk to a lot. So I know that this has been an incredibly busy period for you and like most of us you haven't had the sort of lockdown I like I assume you weren't making banana bread or doing jigsaws during the lockdown but when you do have some spare time what are things that you like to do when you're not the minister for finance So I uh, adore reading I know this about you yeah. I adore reading and uh, I uh, uh, love mu- love music too. I uh, listen to a lot of music. Uh, and uh, are you a bit of a mixologist? I think I, I think <laughs> I, I think I may well be actually uh, because I've, I've, I've lots of little interests in lots in, in a variety of things. Right. Like I, uh, I'm, I'm also very interested in particular sports that I follow avidly uh, and deeply, uh, and uh, th- that really matter to me. Uh, and affect my mood. Like what kind of sport? I oh, see. Like, I'm going to be terrible at sports. I'm a mad. Um, like uh, um, you know, I'm a member of my my local GAA club. Uh, and is uh, that Bose? Uh, no, that's not that's GAA. That's Nafina. soccer. Oh, Nafina. Nafina. Bose is soccer. We'll come on see, to that I'm in a terrible. moment. Stephanie, we'll come on to. Them. No, <laughs> look. Uh, and uh, you know, I I love our Gaelic sports. I love soccer. I'm a, a, a go to Dalyman Park to see Bose play when I can. I also support the greatest football team in the world that isn't Irish, which is Tottenham Hotspur, which has a, a deep effect on how I feel in a Saturday th- Even with Sunday my afternoon. small knowledge, I know that they are not the greatest team in the world. Stephanie, this is, the, exactly the, kind, this is exactly the kind of political language I warned you about <laughs> earlier on in our interview now. No my apologies. No need for that. Uh, Unparliamentary then, language. Oh, shocking stuff. Uh, and then uh, I read constantly and always have an album on my phone. And uh, that that that's deeply important then for looking after my soul when I'm uh, dealing with doing my job. And do you have any ways of indicating, like, do you switch off and just go into your house and try not to see anyone? Or do you have ways of indicating to the world, like, please don't minister me today? I um, have been incredibly fortunate with uh, uh, the... Uh, uh, the community within which I live and uh, we're a great Dublin bunch. Central. Look, I have found that with a handful of rare and exceptional circumstances, if I'm out with my family or if I'm out um, in my shorts, there's a, a, a thought that would put many people off approaching me anyway. Oh, well, it worked uh, well for R- Richard Bruton the other day. <laughs> I think he had his shorts on him, Stephanie. He did. You, you <laughs> were saying that you might be a, 
<laughs> you might that might be a more a more private image you have. <laughs> Who knows? The image I have. Uh, 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 I um, when I have my headphones on, I'm out and about. Uh, what, uh, the vast majority of occasions, I'm I'm left alone. If and I'm wearing a shirt and tie, or if I'm at a work event, that's completely separate. But that's all fine. And you would work with a lot of ministers of finance, like globally. Is that normal? Like, do other ministers of finance in other countries are they able to walk around with their headphones on in their shorts? It's not at all normal. Many of my, quite a few of my colleagues as ministers of finance wouldn't even be elected, okay. uh, and uh, they would be appointed to parliament but would not be elected. Uh, and then um, the vast majority of my other colleagues uh, uh, might not live in the constituencies they represent uh, and would not have the level of um, engagement with um, uh, voters or citizens that I would have. Would but have that's the big strength of Ireland. Yeah. That's kind of, I, I love that about us. I love that we can... Like I've seen, I've been walking around Marion Square and seen Simon Harris walking and just seen teenage girls being like, hi, Simon. And like that there is a level of, in the same way they would react to seeing some of the cast of Finding Joy or Normal People. Like sort of a giggle and a kind of get a sense. Simon Harris will love the comparison between himself and Paul Meskel now. Yeah, he so will. So I'll tell him he made us. Um, I think that's it for me. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me on, Stephanie. I think. Someone who places principles above personalities in the way that you do is something that is crucial for a Minister for Finance. And I want to thank you so much for everything that you've done in the last couple of months and wish you all the best in the future. And to you as well, Stephanie. And uh, thanks for having me on. Make sure you look after me in the budget. Oh, there we go again. (laughs) There we go again. Thank Thank you. you now. That's it for this week's episode of Basically. If you enjoyed the show, please, 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 can you share it with a friend? Share it on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Just share the link or you can go wherever you find your podcasts and rate it and review it. It really does help us reach more listeners. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Cahal O'Gara. And we are produced by Alan Bennett at the Headstuff Network. No, Headstuff Podcast Network. We can just put that in. Uh, Sorry. Uh, the Heads Up Podcast Network. I'll never get that right. <laughs>